You're listening to the Child Life Cooperative Podcast, a place where child life professionals share their real and honest stories with host and certified child life specialist, Allie Jones. We all know death is hard, but few people face bereavement as often as child life specialists. For many, clocking in means there's a chance they will hold a lifeless hand or hug a distraught parent. How does a child life specialist best support families and children in the midst of insurmountable grief? How does one keep appropriate boundaries and separate bereavement at work from home life? This week, professor and certified child life specialist Janae LeBird explores the heavy topic of bereavement and shares her years of expertise. Here's this week's Honest Story. Hello, all. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the Child Life Cooperative. I'm really excited to welcome our guest this week. Her name is Janae LeBird. And uh, Janae, we're actually going to be talking about a very heavy topic that, that can be difficult to discuss in some ways. And also, as we just even mentioned before we hit record even, of how this is such a vast topic where um, even in a, a brief podcast episode we can't touch on nearly enough. But um, the topic that we're going to be discussing today is about grief and loss and bereavement and something that a lot of our listeners have reached out saying and expressing interest in learning more about it. So Janae, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast today to share your your wisdom, your expertise, and just even your own real and honest stories. We're really excited to have you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't we just jump right in for the sake of time? Kind of starting off, would you mind just sharing with us a little bit of what sort of what sort of experiences have you had as a child life specialist in end of life and bereavement situations? Sure. So I have worked in quite a few different places. My first job was working in a children's hospital that was connected to an adult adult hospital. And so with that, um, when I first started, I went to general medical surgical unit and then the hemoc specialist left and I had the opportunity to transfer over to that role. And so of course with hemoc comes end of life issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and then because we were a children's hospital connected with an adult hospital, we were often consulted for end of life issues, um, for adults who had life-threatening issues. Um, And so that was a really neat experience as well. And then um, when I moved from Florida and then to Virginia, I worked with chronic and life-threatening illness as well, and then HEMOC. And then when I had my first daughter, I had the opportunity to leave the hospital setting and work in a hospice. And Mm. I did, um, I was the bereavement program director. And while I was working in the hospital before I worked in hospice, I also worked in nonprofit a little bit and did some consulting work and individual work and working with bereaved families as well as children of an adult who had a life-threatening illness. So quite a, kind of all over the board uh, mm-hmm. and working with kids and families. Absolutely. Even early on, too, it's amazing to hear the, kind of the thread of grief and support that you've had to provide from the very beginning. Yeah, it was quite unique. I didn't know if I was ready for something like that. I, I had a really 
great support in my um, my manager, and also I was provided a mentor when I went into that role because I was a very new specialist. But what was so great was my manager saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, mm-hmm. um, and so and that really was the catalyst for the rest of my career and finding what I feel like is my niche and supporting families with um, illness, bereavement, and loss. Mm. I'm curious, how would you sum up kind of what she saw in you? It can be hard to talk about yourself in that sort of sense, but. (laughs) Well, I was new, so I really, I think what she saw is that I had an ability to relate with people and to connect with people. And so, you know, even, and I had a really great mentor who had, had years of experience who in the work of, um, she was a hemop child life specialist and then went part-time as life changed for her. Um, so when she was on during her days, most of her days was spent right next to me. And so for me, it was really great because I had someone who I could process these things with, um, early on in my career from, from a newly diagnosed patient and how do I go and prep that patient and how do I interact with a physician and all of those things that we get scared of. And she was right beside me even till when I had my very first death experience. And so Mm. I think that the pairing of whatever my manager saw in me, knowing that I was still new and I, there was lots that I didn't know, but I had a heart relate with people and I also had someone who could mentor me and be along the side until um, they felt like I didn't need her by my side was very helpful and giving me a great foundation to carry on uh, once I grew and matured in my um, my work with her by my side and then being independent and then of course I took all of those skills with me on, um, for the rest of my work. Mm -hmm. I love to hear the way that having a mentor and having someone walk alongside of you as you support families was so huge and such a important role, as you said, even building the foundation. And you mentioned your first end of life situation. Could you tell us a little bit about what, what you remember from that? Sure. So this particular patient was a relapse patient, and I did not meet this particular patient until um, he had relapsed. And um, I had developed a relationship with him over, you know, he spent lots of time in the hospital. And I remember he was not doing very well. He was having problems breathing. And so he was going to be transferred from the floor to the ICU. Uh, we had no clue what the trajectory was going to be at that time frame, and he was going to be intubated, so I was prepping him for intubation, mm-hmm. and he, they, you know, did everything, and I was with him during, and supported him through being intubated, and very quickly after that, um, something happened, and he died. I mean, it was wow. very, very quick. Um, and his caregiver was right outside of the room um, when everything was occurring. And while I don't have very clear, um, this was a, a long time ago, while I don't have very clear images of what happened with him right after, I will say that after being with the family and supporting the family, and then after I left 
the situation, I immediately um, went to go see my manager. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful thing about that particular day is it was the day that my mentor was on. So I had both of them in the room and was able to process what just happened. This was an unexpected death. Um, of course, he had relapsed and he was ill, but we um, this was kind of a shock to us all. Right. He was having difficulty breathing and um, from prepping to intubation to death um I don't even, I can't remember if it was minutes to hours later, mm-hmm. but it seems like it happened very fast. Um, and being with his mom outside of uh, the doors and then from there going to be with um, my supervisor and my mentor. And I just remember just telling them that he died and um, and then processing what that experience was like in real time because mm-hmm. it had just happened. And so having their support, I think, was so critical and how I was able to process future deaths and what that was like for me. And to know that I had their support was really important in being very new in my career, but also how that would shape my future experiences and then how it would also shape me supporting others as I became more experienced in my role as a child life specialist, helping um, other new um, specialists and students that experienced death during um, their time in their internship. Mm. Um, And even now as an educator, how I can help students um, prepare for that time. So I'm so thankful that I had that opportunity to have both my manager and mentor walk alongside of me during that time. Right. How, how amazing that that moment ended up having such a ripple effect for how you now even support your own students, which is amazing. What, what do you kind of remember as far as how you perceived that death? Like, was there a certain change of perception that you had to have or um, a way that you approached processing that event? Um, I think everything just happens so quickly and, It was more processing the loss of uh, the person who died, that experience that I was having as quickly as it happened, as um, unexpectedly um, that it happened. And so I think those were all of the kind of things that were kind of running through my mind and just the loss of a person, Mm -hmm. a a person who I would see when I... um, you know, came in in the morning and what that was going to be like, how that was going to be different. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you formed such an attachment and a relationship with that patient as well. And that's sure. that's something to grieve. Did you ever notice at any point in your career, a, like a certain level of trying to withhold connecting with any patients because of experiencing grief, especially the, for those patients that you know that their outcome is most likely death. What did it look like to still build and foster deep relationships with that person? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the hard part is because we're humans working with humans and not machines, there is just this certain level. Every death is so different. And you, I think, depending on you know, you have certain connections with patients, some more than others in different ways. The services should be the same regardless Mm -hmm. of the connection that you have 
have with um, that particular patient. But I will say that um, guarding is something that becomes very difficult to do um, because you're human. Mm-hmm. And there is such power in connecting with people, whether it's in their suffering or within their hope or whatever it might be, that just the connection alone, it becomes very difficult. And I think that when we begin to harden ourselves to the experience, then it becomes a question of um, when do I need to step back? Um, mm-hmm. I think there are lots of self-reflection that happens when you work in trauma and end-of-life situations that we have to have a lot of self-reflection to say, where are my boundaries? Because I think boundaries are always helpful, and we don't have to necessarily harden ourselves to um, to have a boundary. I think we can have a very clear boundary of uh, where our limit is and what we do, um, because understanding that I might have more of a connection with one patient than the other, asking ourselves, am I giving this patient something different than I would this other because I feel maybe a different emotional connection with one versus the other. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, I don't think that I really was a person who could protect um, how I felt internally. I think how that was expressed or how that is um, given out in services, there's lots of self-reflection to make sure that you're giving quality services because at the end of the day, that's what we're there for, right, Mm -hmm. is to be able to support patients and their families and give them the services that they need to thrive regardless of what the outcome might be. Mm -hmm. Um, But we are too impacted. Um, So oftentimes we say it's not about us. Um, But there are aspects of us that we, um, that are intertwined in the um, giving of care. So whether that is doing legacy building or whether it's playing with that patient and watching them hit milestones that we didn't think that they would take or, um, towards the end of the life where you have given families an opportunity to be in a play space and just be as a family outside of um, that hospital room and that space, whatever that might look like. And so there's these things that we, we get to witness, which I think is such an awesome opportunity that we get to witness that this walk that families journey through. And we're just a um, we're, we don't get to walk the whole journey with the family, but we get a glimpse of that. Mm-hmm. And I think for us in that glimpse, we become a piece of that story, but they become a piece of our story as well. Mm-hmm. And so in that we have to have that self-reflection. We have to really look at how am I changed as a person? Because I will tell you, from that very first death that I experienced to the very last death that I've experienced, I'm not the same person. And their stories travel with me, um, even as I speak about them now. Um, and so looking at who I am and how that evolves as I grow um, changes even the types of services that I give based on what I know through theory and through experience, um, but also through connections with families. Mm -hmm. Janae, I think you summed that up so well of explaining how 
I just get a sense of you really hitting on the professionalism aspect that we have to remember that we are professional. We are not their best friend. We're not their aunt or anything like that, but that we're a child life specialist with a professional role to play to help guide them, but yet also not denying how they do have an impact on us. And that self-reflection is so huge going in time with what we're dealing with and what we're experiencing and not pretending that it's not having an impact as well. Right. Um, it, it does bring up an interesting thought then and something that I have many students that wrestle with and even myself wrestling with uh, with end of life is when we have our own beliefs about death and dying and what that means to us emotionally, spiritually, all of those things. Um, can you speak into what your experience has been like as far as recognizing that we have our own self to bring to situations, but not projecting that? And how do we navigate that situation with patients and families in end of life? Sure. You know, that is a great question because we do, we bring our whole selves into every situation that we um, go into. Um, and so our beliefs, whatever that might be, we bring that with us. And I think that becomes a very important grounding foundation. At least I know it is for me and for my own practice of it is where I find center, where I found find peace and hope and joy. Um, so I think walking that line is understanding that we are all spiritual beings, meaning that we have the ability to find meaning. And so just because we are spiritual does not mean that we're religious. And when we're talking about spirituality, we have to look at meaning making. And regardless um, of regardless of what my faith is and how that faith might be the same or different, um, you know, because I can walk with someone who professes to have the same faith system that I have, but maybe they walk that out very differently. And so I think sometimes there's this misconception, um, even if we have the same faith that um, if I pray that that person wants to pray when I'm ready to pray, <laughs> if I say that I'm ready to pray for this particular patient. And that might not be the case, and it can be very off-putting. Um, and be in a place that causes that other person to want to reject services and you as a person mm -hmm. because they weren't ready to enter that space. So I think that we have to be very careful of projecting anything onto the other person, whoever that might be, that the patient, the family. So it's very important to connect with them on the spirituality aspect of meaning making. And so how does this family that's in front of me, how do they make meaning and what, where do they find hope, mm -hmm. um, in whatever situation it might be. Um, and, and then of course, in the situation that they're in right now. And so I think even when we're talking about bereavement, um, we know the research says that, um, individuals who are able to connect to meaning making do a better job of coping. And so if we can support the meaning making and whatever that looks like for them, knowing that it might be different, then we can walk with them in that and not feel like we are turning away from our own faith. I think mm -hmm. sometimes students have asked me, well, I don't want to, like if they have 
a very strong conviction of one thing and they're wondering like am I betraying my faith if I um or whatever that belief is or maybe there is no belief system Mm -hmm. in a religious aspect but they are spiritual and they find meaning making in um how they connect with nature or, um, and, you know, different ways of how people connect with, uh, their own meaning making. If we can understand who we are and then, um, use that as a platform to connect with somebody else of how they create their meaning making, I think it becomes a more fluid dynamic approach than, um, real thinking that it's that I have to put my faith religion, spirituality down to help someone else. I think that is not the case at all Mm -hmm. um, because we bring our whole selves in. And I think with my own faith and system and the, my own beliefs, I think that becomes a platform of how I can help someone else and feel very grounded in who I am. And I think that becomes a, a great catalyst to help someone else in um, whatever their their um, belief system might be. I have walked with a Hindu family in um, bereavement care very different than my own beliefs and so my role was just to sit and to learn mm-hmm. who who is this family that's in front of me and I knew very little about the Hindu faith and so I had to learn of what rituals do they do at the time of death um, or even several days of death as my role um, and that capacity was in bereavement care and so in order for me to support them and to understand what who I who I am and what I am bringing, but there's already a system that's working for them. And so my job is to step alongside of them and then offer services that is um, compatible with their belief system. Um, Because if not, then I can interrupt their meaning making. Mm -hmm. And that's not my goal. My goal is to connect them with their meaning making. And so, so how can I connect with where they find hope and where they find their meaning? Mm-hmm. That's that's a great perspective and in a neat way to see, to, to really be reminded of your goal as a child life specialist. And I love the word meaning making and thinking about how that is something that we want to find unity in. I am curious for you too. I mean, in, in such a world that you've worked in with, with death and with loss, I don't know if you got this, this statement, but I know for myself when people hear that we work with children that die or, or moms and dads that die saying, oh, I could never do that job or I could, you know, that just sounds so awful or so hard. Could you speak into a little bit about how have you seen some of this suffering be used for good and, and to promote some hope? Yeah, so that that question does come up a lot and you just see people's faces drop when you tell them what what you do. And I think when that question comes up or, um, the kind of the blank stare face, or I don't know how you could do that. I, what I speak to is calling and there are things that I just, I can't do. And even within death and dying, I find that it is easier for me to deal with death and dying of an illness that has a cause for me somewhere in my brain um, or in my um, psyche that can make sense. Mm. Trauma is, it's challenging for me. And so there are even different sects within 
you know, death mm-hmm. and dying that I feel more comfortable with than not. And even in the NICU, when I was working in the hospital setting, I'm like, these babies should be in somebody's womb and they're so tiny. And, um, and so there were, um, there, there just are places I think that feel comfortable to us. And so to all of us, it's going to be very different. You know, some people thrive in trauma. Um, a really good friend of mine who worked in the PICU, um, and when I had to work different shifts, I mean, she was phenomenal and loved trauma. And when she was gone and I had to cross cover and and she would tell me about a trauma patient and I'm like, Oh, are you, are you serious right now? And so I had to wrap my brain around, okay, prepare yourself because that was harder for me. Mm -hmm. And so I think that even within specialists, like we all have our niche and over time, we, some of us learn that very early on. And some of us, you know, as we get to change different, um, units and have different experiences, we find our niche and then, you know, in life, I think it's the same. And so someone might be really great at working in even sexual abuse clinics. Um, when I was doing my internship for counseling, this was one of the areas that I had a really hard time with, um, on several different levels from, um, the working with families. And so I think that everyone has their own gifting and their own calling. And those are the places where they light up. Like they want to learn more about that particular area and they're hungry for that information. And, um, you know, like someone who loves to build homes and is phenomenal at building homes. And so I just reply, like, that is your niche and that's your thing. And somehow this was my calling and where I get excited, like who gets excited um, and wants to learn more about death and dying. Um, right. So I think that um, it just becomes like something that you um, are called to and then that is where you know like okay this is the areas that we're hungry for I think those are the areas that we should build up and that the areas that we get excited about and it doesn't mean that we don't have nerves when we go into situations when we go into that room and um, know a family member is dying and go to support that that patient it doesn't mean that we don't have any of those um, feelings of angst or worry, will I say the right things? Or, But it does mean something that when we can say, oh, there's something about this that I feel connected to, that I feel drawn to versus something else. That is such a valuable insight and I think so encouraging and something that can give specialists and students a lot of freedom to recognize that, um, you know, that, that, if you do thrive in that setting, then that's, that's wonderful. And if you don't, then that's also okay that there might be other things that really are your, your giftings and your talents too. So that's, that's really a a valuable perspective. Like I, I predicted, I knew that this time would, would go so quick, but we have two segments that I love to close with and, um, our, what would you do segment though? Sometimes they can be lighthearted and funny. This one is actually more of a somber one. Um, so are you ready for this little segment? Here we go. Okay. So a 12 year old patient is in the PICU due to a motor vehicle accident. Unfortunately, there's so much internal bleeding. The doctors believe he is rapidly nearing the end of his life, potentially within hours. He is in and out of consciousness and continues to ask if he will die. 
His parents are present, and his five-year-old and eight-year-old siblings are also at bedside. What next steps would you take as a child life specialist? What would you do? So this is a very layered question. Um, And so I think we'll just take it by pieces. I will first by saying um, spending time with a family in this situation, there has to be lots of stopping, reassessing, and validating emotions because Mm -hmm. this is a very high, intense um, situation. Um, I imagine that I'm getting called because of the question. Um, if I hadn't already had a report of what was going on with this particular patient, um, I would like to speak with the par- the parents and introduce services, what my role is and how I can help support them. Um, and also have conversations around what has the patient already, what is the patient already aware of? What are the siblings already aware of, which would give us some context around um, what they already have heard and what they understand, or at least what the parents believe they have heard and and understand. Um, So you're not walking in blindly speaking to the patient with siblings present. Um, I think it's also very important to find out who the patient is. And sometimes we don't have a lot of time as the scenario talks about, um, you know, this patient could die within hours. Um, So depending on how much time that you have, um, it might be asking the family, you know, if you could describe your son in three words, how would you describe him? Mm -hmm. I think it's important to get a picture of who the person is, especially, you know, if this child doesn't pick you, we don't really have a lot of perspective of, um, you know, if they came in overnight, you didn't, you know, my work, I, have the opportunity to spend days, weeks, sometimes months and years with patients. And so we have, um, we have learned the personality, but in a situation that is trauma, um, and through an MVA, we don't always have that information. So learning about who that person is and when you're spending time with those siblings, they can also give you, um, you know, tell you about who their brother is. Um, finding out their fears and beliefs and what do they even hope to um, accomplish in that time. I think, you know, when we, when you're at end of life, spirituality comes up, um, whether they're religious or not, um, how they make meaning, the things that they um, want to bring up, I think is um, something that just kind of naturally comes up without any pushing. Um, And so it's, it's really important to have that conversation with them. Um, Even do they want you to talk with their child Mm -hmm. about this. Um, And so this is a very hot topic, right? If the child asks the question, um, do we lie or not, right? And so my philosophy is that I would not lie to a child, but it might be if the parent has said, we do not want you to answer this question, that I redirect that question to the parents or even reflect that question back to you. Um, the child. Um, and so it's, it's really important, I think, to, to get that and how, you know, to give parents the opportunity to, how do you want me to support you? I understand that your child is asking questions about if they're dying. Is it something that you want to talk with your child about and I'm present there to support you? Um, or do you want to start the conversation and then do you want me to continue on? Or um, the, the different myriad of ways that that conversation can go um, because we don't want to take away that opportunity for parents to mm-hmm. have that um, conversation with their child. We want to equip them 
and support them in it. So if they want to have the conversation, but they don't have the words, where do I start? Where do I begin? That you can help them and equip them and support them through that. I think this is also an interdisciplinary um, uh, support, whether it's um, if the family is Want, wanting the support of a chaplain as well as a social worker, I think that becomes very important in an end-of-life situation um, with this. Um, you know, especially because this child is going in and out of consciousness, sometimes we get all prepared, right, to work with that patient and that sibling, and we go in, and the patient is not, you know, they're not lucid. They're not able to have this conversation that we've been preparing in our mind and our heart for. Um, and so I think that's another reason why it becomes so important to equip parents um, because we might not be present when that when that child is asking that question again. Um, and so I think that becomes very important. Mm-hmm. In the case that the child is awake um, and starting to ask these questions, even with the family, we want to start at the very beginning um, of you were in a, a really bad car accident and your body was really hurt. Now you're here at the hospital and then go from there. What did the doctors do? And um, and this is very helpful information for the siblings as well. They might not have heard all of the information. The other context, um, contextual information we need to know is were the siblings there? Did they mm-hmm. witness this car accident? Because that um, gives us more information as well of how to support this family as they're walking through this journey. So um, reviewing what happened um, and since they've been at the hospital, what types of treatment have they tried? And very basic terms, obviously, if this child is going in and out of consciousness, they're not going to be able to have a very long, drawn-out conversation. So we want to keep it... Um, very concise as much as possible but siblings are also there and may have questions during this time and then you know recognizing and saying to this patient you're having I'm hearing that you're having lots of questions about if you are going to die wow that validate the gravity of that question and the courage that it took to to take um to even ask that question out loud. And then, of course, to reflect that back, what are you thinking um, mm-hmm. that you're having that? And then, um, you know, as we have talked about how sick their body is and how the doctors have tried everything, the doctors are worried, too, that your that your body is not strong and um, that they don't have enough treatment um, to make you better and that your body is not going to get better. And I think it's very important to not necessarily talk about the person, but differentiate the person from the body. I think in the HEMOC world, we you sometimes hear, oh, they were not strong enough to fight. And so there are implications behind that as well. Um, but there is the body of that person and the trauma that they went through and that their um, body was so hurt and that it's probably not going to get better or it's not going to get better in the case, in this particular case. Mm-hmm. And so I think, like, like I said before, lots of stopping, reassessing, validating emotions and asking, do they have questions along this path? Because there are so many layers to this particular scenario. And there's um, one scenario that comes to my mind that it was a brain uh, patient that had a brain tumor and she came in and we knew that she was going to die 
I had the opportunity to talk with her parents. When we went in to um, speak with her and parents said, you know, no, if you can start the conversation and then we can just be present and support our daughter and um, just be present in the moment. When I told her, you know, your brain tumor's back because it was a, a relapse and your body is not going to get better. She had very little strength, but she whispered, I know. Mm. And I thought that was so powerful. And while siblings were not present um, in this particular situation, I think it validated to the parents that this was important for us to walk with her in. And then so the follow-up is, well, what's going to happen next? And I think in this scenario, the same, what will happen next? How can we keep your body comfortable? Um, And who is going to be here with you? Mm -hmm. And um, maybe even asking the question, is there somebody that you want to talk to or see? Um, You know, this patient is 12, so they might have a grandparent or an uncle or a friend that they want to talk to. Um, And so, of course, if it's a friend of the same age, making sure that that other side, that family member is okay, um, that parent is okay with that. Um, But I think it's important to ask the question, is there somebody you want to see? Is there somebody you want to talk to? Um, Because this is their their last moments of living. And so how can we honor them in that? Mm. That was so beautifully answered. And like you said, there were so many layers to this question, but I love the way that you addressed the whole family and empowering the family to really take the lead in so many ways and, and supporting each person while continuously reassessing. I also loved that point as well. That was such a complex question. So I appreciate you taking the time to answer it with such thoughtfulness and also comparing it to um, your own situation as well with this girl with a brain tumor. So thank you, Janae. And, no problem. and now thank we you. can head into our rapid five segment. So a little bit more lighthearted in some ways, um, or just at least sharing a little bit more about yourself in, uh, five questions, five brief answers. Are you ready for this part? Okay. Well, let's bring it on. All right. Perfect. Number one, what is one of your most appreciated legacy-making tools to use? I think the ability that we have with technology is capturing voice and image, um, video image um, to be particular. I think that we handprints are beautiful and they are um, great. Um, even I just, in the past year, experienced a significant loss. My father died and we did handprints for him. And um, I cherish those, but I think what I cherish most are um, hearing his voice, whether it's through voicemail or through like some family thing that we've been able to video. That's very special. Number two, what is one thought that has helped you stay calm in working with family members nearing end of life? Uh, so I spoke about this before, but I really, my faith is something that is very grounding to me. Um, and so when my when I begin to get anxious, when I go into a room, um, I might be praying to myself um, to just, that I would be prepared for whatever might come. Uh, so whatever scenario that I would be slow to speak and be quick to listen, I think that becomes very important is to listen. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in our, our own thoughts and feelings or even like, what is this person saying that we can go on and on and on. And sometimes they just need someone to, they need someone 
slow myself down. So when I go into that space, whatever that might look like, um, that becomes, I think, very important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which kind of ties into number three. What is one piece of advice you would give to a student or a specialist who does feel especially anxious to work with bereavement cases? So I think there are two things that come to my mind. One is what is making them anxious because it could be anything from um, they have their own fears about death and dying to I don't know what to say. What if I say the wrong thing? Um, So I think it's really important to have them go into themselves and say, okay, so what, what is, what about this situation makes you anxious? And then the self-reflecting of, um, you know, if it's the case that they have their own worries about death and dying or unsure of their own beliefs, or maybe they felt strong in their beliefs. And then through an experience during their internship or their work experience, they feel a little, um, unsteady um, and what they thought that they believed in. And so I think during those times, we have to go into self-reflecting and gather the people that help ground us. And that might be family. It might be um, someone within their faith circle. It might be friends. Um, and it's not necessarily um, violating um, confidentiality, but saying, hey, I'm having a hard time in this area around this particular belief. Can I talk about this with you? And gathering the support that they need to process that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great advice. That would be very, very helpful. Number four, what is something you would typically do to take care of yourself after a loss? Oh, so I cry. <laughs> I allow myself to cry. And um, I attend funerals when I feel that I want to. Every, like I said, every death is different. Um, so definitely I um, give myself permission to cry. Uh, attend funerals to say goodbye. Um, I speak with trusted people that I can really process what the death was for me. And so that tends to be like a close co-worker, um, sometimes a chaplain or a social worker, or I would attend debriefings when they occurred so that I could um, be a part of processing what the experience was like. Um, I think the kind of the ongoing things is I, um, I find things that fill me up. So for me, that would be having my faith experience, going to church, laughing is so important. Um, I also don't watch movies or, or at this time. I wouldn't watch movies or shows that were high intense intensity, like they were really real life. So for instance, I used to love Grey's Anatomy. And then when one of the um, attendings got cancer, I stopped watching um, because it just, it started to enter into my world. And I watch TV to escape, not to experience more of what I, you know, did on a very everyday basis and not that of course the the scenes were dramatic but it wasn't a space that I was willing to enter um I didn't watch my sister's keeper when it came out it was just too close to home for me and so I really looked at what are things that filled me up um sometimes exercise um I sometimes have a very physical reaction um of um Especially if we've had several deaths, sometimes that happens where you have several deaths at one time, or it's just intense on the unit. It might you might.
might have a death, a newly diagnosed patient, and several other things that are going on at one time. And so um, physically getting that energy out um, is something that it has also been very helpful. Mm, that's awesome. Those are great go-tos. Number five, last but certainly not least, what is something that gives you joy in life today? Oh, joy today. Um, my, I've said this a lot, um, but my faith, I think it is the one constant that it does not change. Whether my circumstances change, that does not change. And that becomes very grounding. It becomes a place of peace when everything is uncertain. Um, and I think that becomes so important to me. Um, and of course, my children and my husband, who is a good meter for me um, when I was working in the clinical setting, if I was becoming a bit out of balance, he would say, hey, what's going on with you? Or he would give me the, a check. Like, um, And so I knew that, okay, I need to go do some soul work. <laughs> what, yeah. what types of things fill me up? Kind of going back to that, um, the question before. But I think um, most of all, my faith, because that is the one thing that does not change. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I love the way that you're clinging to that as your constant. That's amazing. Janae, thank you so much for taking the time and just even having the courage to explore such a wide, big topic. I really appreciate your stories and your wisdom and just such a valuable perspective that you share. I actually felt like I wanted to keep taking notes because you said so many great things. And um, I just appreciate you being willing to step into this and to sharing um, your thoughts about such a, a big topic that I know that there's so many rocks left unturned, if you will. I think that's an expression. Yeah. But hopefully this at least sparks some, some good conversations for other teams to have with each other, to have with their mentors, um, to really encourage that self-reflection. And I appreciate you kind of modeling for that um, in your own story. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the time that you allowed me to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to this week's episode. And in the meantime, may we all continue to press into the mission of the Child Life Cooperative by learning through reflection, uniting for support, and equipping students to advance the child life profession. Thank you all so much. And until next time. <laughs>